Maya Angelou, it's not what you say, it's not what you do, it's how you make people feel. And that's, I'm all in on that. Every single individual has a story to tell. And they're great stories that need to be heard. I want every listener to know they have the ability to change the world. Welcome to the 1720 Podcast. What's up, Mountain Movers? Welcome back to the 1720 Podcast. My name is Kevin with my co-host, Stuart. Hey, guys. And before we introduce our special guest this week, we just want to talk about some testimonies we've been receiving from listeners. We've had some great compliments and comments about the impact that these episodes are making. And we just want to take a minute to step down and say, that is the fuel to the fire for us to keep these things going and keep us motivated. So if you're getting an impact from these, we would love to hear from you. Reach out, not only to tell us the impact it's making, but maybe some things that you would love to hear from us, some sub- subjects, topics, guests, you name it. Yeah, those are awesome emails to get and awesome texts to see, so we really enjoy seeing those. Um, and I suppose without further ado, our guest today, Amy Stewart. Um, Amy and I have met professionally. We had a case together, and it was one of those situations where we just kept bumping into each other. And I was like, we need to get Amy on because I've seen her talk um, about some DEI stuff that I think mm-hmm. we'll probably get into later. So, uh, Amy Stewart, this is how we kick off, okay. is, is what's your elevator pitch? If you're stuck in an elevator with someone, who is Amy Stewart? Oh, my goodness. I am a girl from High Point, North Carolina, that is living her best life, Um have the law firm Stewart Law Group, and uh, we help companies solve problems. It could be problems that they are having with employees. It could be a construction issue they may be dealing with, but really just want to be a problem solver and work as a team with our clients to get the, the solution that they need. All right. So you started us out in North Carolina. This is immediately <laughs> where, uh, yeah, Chicago guys. So you know where this is going. Oh, okay. Yeah, we, we immediately get into the ditch with and, basketball. And you know, that's sports. where we're going. Yep. I know. Okay. So when, uh, when, when you grew up in North Carolina, where is high point? High point. When, if you're from North Carolina, if there's anyone from North Carolina knows, I have to say it that way. It's in the middle of the state. So it is okay. an hour and a half from Charlotte, an hour and a half from Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill. Um, and 30 minutes from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, where I went to school at Wake Forest. So were you always a Demon Deacon fan, or did you grow up with a particular color blue? Well, see, there you go. Uh So I loved Carolina, because it was a Michael Jordan, James Worthy days, Dean Smith. Loved them. I loved drinking the Carolina blue Coca-Colas and all of that when they were winning national championships. So in Funny story. So in fifth grade, because we had so many amazing schools in North Carolina, they would select different groups of kids to go to different schools. And I wanted to go to Carolina so bad because J.R. Reed was there. And I didn't get picked. I had to go to Wake Forest. So I'm mad at the back of the bus, (laughs) arms crossed. And I get there, and it was just a magical place for me. Yeah. And where I came from and from High Point, people didn't go to college. So I got back to my neighborhood, Barbie Street, and I started telling everybody that would listen to me, I'm going to Wake Forest. And no one, again, went to school after high school. And so they're like, yeah, whatever, you're not going anywhere. And so once I signed my scholarship, that would have been six, seven years later, it was always written in the High Point Enterprise newspaper. (laughs) She wanted to go to Wake Forest since she was in fifth grade. So it was 
as soon as I was there, I knew that's where I wanted to go. That's really a cool story, actually. So I grew up in a small southeast Texas town. Mm-hmm. So this idea of High Point. Is, <laughs> you got it. It kind of it kind of resonates with me because there's a bit of a saying, I'll mess it up, but like people never leave Sour Lake. Right. And it sounds like that's a little mm-hmm. bit like High Point. What What's it like in High Point? Why don't people leave? Well, I don't, I was quick to try to leave High Point because it is, I mean, it was an industrial city, like Haynes Hosiery was there. There mm-hmm. wasn't a lot of industry there other than hosiery and furniture. Mm-hmm. High Point is the furniture capital of the world. Yeah. This table probably in some way, somehow came here some way through High Point. So I immediately wanted to leave High Point, but all of my family's there. All of my friends are still there from high school. And um, with Facebook, I still connect with all of them. And they, it's interesting because as we've moved to Texas, Facebook has been able to just everybody from high school cheering me on from high point. I mean, that's just kind of crazy. Anytime I post anything, they're like, way to go, Amy. (laughs) (laughs) That's fun. That's fun. Okay. So high point takes you to wake. Mm -hmm. Um, And I want to talk all about being awake and playing college basketball because that's super fun to me. I didn't play. I'm just a regular old dude who loves basketball. Yeah. How'd you, how'd you end up there? High school experience, get a scholarship. Tell us all that story. Yeah. So um, played at high point central, which was a, you know, a huge powerhouse for girls basketball in North Carolina and then got the scholarship to go play at Wake Forest. And so I was there in 90 to 94. And for context for Texans, Tim Duncan was a freshman when I was a senior. Mm-hmm. Um, and the experience still lives with me now. I mean, all the lessons learned from being a student athlete, it's really kind of helped me run, start and run the firm, the law firm that, uh, that I have. And so um, the stories with the teammates that I've had and I still maintain contact with over the years is, is just, I mean, it's irreplaceable. Yeah. There's, I, I, I hate to linger on it cause we do it so much, but there's so much lesson in sport. Yeah. And as we come out of the tournament, uh, they, they always do this sort of montage of, I forget exactly what it was, but 99% of our student athletes don't go pro in right. sport mm-hmm. and it's accountants and lawyers and doctors and bankers and all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and I just think, man, these kids are learning great lessons yeah. that they're going to go take and apply somewhere else, right? Yeah, but it took, I mean, even with me, it took a while for me to appreciate all the intangible skills that you learn from being a student athlete. Like, for example, 40 hours of the week of, of every, of being freshman through a senior was dedicated to sport. That was, that was our job. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's kind of a hard job when you're running, jumping, you know, lifting weights and all that stuff and still have all the academic requirements that, that all the other students have. But teamwork, um, uh, intensity, being able to compete with one another and not be ugly about it. Like, for example, you and I met and we were adversaries. Correct. But we don't have to be adversarial. Correct. Um, you know, it's, we can, come together and, and and have a podcast and then we can go back and, and litigate a case. It's it's totally okay. But I learned that from athletics. Mm-hmm. I mean, I used to hate the end of the game, as you can see it when you watch, t- watch it on TV, where you'd have to go across and shake the hand of the other team when you lost. Uh-huh. I hated that. Yeah. But we do that at the end of a trial. Right. I never would have thought that the same thing that I did at the end of a basketball game is the exact same thing you do at the end of a trial. You go across the other side, you shake the hand and say, good job. Yeah, nice work. Nice work. We did. Uh, I, there's two things I talk about way too much on here, basketball and my kids. <laughs> and so last night, Ashley was having some friends over to the house, and so I had to take the kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, we 
dropped the dog off at my mom and dad's house because the dog's a problem. And then we went to Dickie's. We're sitting at Dickie's and uh, playing this little game. It's a long story that goes nowhere. Sorry in advance. <laughs> um, you know those little, uh, you, like you pop, you push it down and it goes the other direction. Then you flip it over and you, you know, it's yeah. like a little pop. Well, we bought these things from for Easter. Um, and there's like a They're series stress of stress relievers. My daughter yeah, bought one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we made a game out of it. We're sitting at Dickie's eating dinner. We made a game out of it. And, um, my, uh, 13 year old beat my eight, uh, nine year old at it. The game was over and he reaches across the table and shakes her hand and goes, good game. Yeah. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We're, maybe we are learning something. That, I mean, no, I mean, I, I used to hate doing it, but again, I do it every time at the end of a trial or even if we settle a case or, you know, but I know there's a lot of people that can't do that, mm-hmm. but I know sports taught me to be gracious and be, and be a good loser. Yeah. Sometimes it's better to be a good loser than a you know a good winner. Right. Okay. So my my cousin played uh, at Sam. He played college basketball. He was a really good basketball player. He has a really cool story of uh, they played at Michigan one year, and for the first time he was standing at the free throw line and he saw himself up on the big jumbotron. And when mm-hmm. you ask him like, "What's your favorite basketball moment?" He says that. What's your favorite moment of playing uh, Division One uh, basketball? What's your, like something that jumps out at you? It was a really cool moment. Well. I coached two, and like my number one from coaching, I can't think of one from playing, um, it, but from coaching, I remember, I coached at Wake Forest in Tulane, because before I grew up and became a lawyer, I was just, I, I coached at Wake Forest for one year, and then I went to New Orleans and um, coached there for two years, and we we were really, we were, we weren't really good at Wake Forest. We were great at Tulane, mm-hmm. and like got to cut the nets down when we won the conference tournament one year. Um, so that is a great um, story to like climb that little ladder and get up there. And I mean, that is so cool. Yeah. Um, fortunately, that was '98 uh, where we all didn't have cell phones to take pictures, but we got that picture, so that's cool. Um, but what I remember that also translates to being a lawyer is that. We're at the, we're in the conference championship and I'm the baby coach on the bench. So I'm about the same age as the seniors on the team or maybe one or two years older. And, um, coach Stockton, who, and she is still there. Uh, they kept running this play under the basket and they kept scoring. And she was like, I'm not going to use the word, but she was like, we got to stop them. It's like the end of the game. I mean, it's just the heat of the game is on. And she looked down and, she goes, who knows what they're doing? And I was like, I do. <laughs> and she's like, tell them what they're doing. And I remember getting the, I remember shaking and going and getting the board, the clipboard, and then getting the dry erase marker and going down and squatting down and looking up at the players. And they were looking at me like, this is your shot. Like, they, <laughs> like the players are looking and I am looking up at them like, this is exciting. And I start drawing it out. And I was like, so this is what you got to do to stop it. And then the next time they ran it and they stopped it. And I, it was like my seat was on fire. And then I jumped up and every one of the players gave me a high five. And it was like, whoo, I can do this. That's but is this, but you know that you get the same feeling though, if you're in a trial or in a deposition and you get somebody to admit something and you're like, I got it. Yes. That is how it felt. Isn't that a funny feeling? It's, it's, it's funny because I, 
again, I played high school basketball, but I remember those, you know, my equivalency of those sorts of moments. And then when we have them professionally, like I run next door and tell Ian, I'd be like, you're never going to believe yeah. what happened. And he's yeah. like, and, and it, but then I'm like, look at, look at this piece of paper. Mm-hmm. And like, yeah. And they're uh, like, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah. But you know what? I tell people this all the time when I'm mentoring or talking about, do you want to be a trial attorney? There, name another job where people show up to watch you do what you do. Like being an athlete, a lawyer. I mean, what else is there mm. for you to compete and present and and to compete, present authentically? You can't say acting because you're not yourself. You're acting mm-hmm. as somebody else. But um, it's sports and being a trial attorney. Is that reflecting on that in hindsight or is that what kind of brought you to your career as a lawyer? Like trying to find something where you still had that perspective. Hindsight. Okay. I, again, growing, coming from High Point, there, there wasn't a lot of lawyers. So, um, so there wasn't any, I, I had no, I knew I liked watching TV and what lawyers were doing on TV, Law and Order, you know, has been on as long as all of us have been alive. And so watching that, uh, but I didn't associate the competitiveness in that when you are a former student athlete, that, that is such an advantage when you start going to be a trial attorney. And one of, when I was a young baby attorney, one of the partners, um, that I worked for, he said, you have an edge because you're not afraid to go to court. And that just didn't make sense to me. He goes, most trial attorneys don't actually want to try cases. It's like saying what? that's like a two guard doesn't want to shoot. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Um, so, uh, I, it is a huge advantage. And then I think just, think I write a lot about the con- the consistency that I find from being a student athlete coach and being a trial attorney and that's where I've kind of figured that out that wait a minute there's not there's not another profession that people because when you're over at Dallas County and you have a trial people just show up and watch it yeah i mean and i, I if i know there's a big trial coming up i want to if i can fit it in i want to go see you know, the Jeff Tillotsons of the world and the Mike Lins of the world and um, Charla Aldis of the world. Go try those cases. So. Uh, I'm guilty of it if, you know, I haven't been out of the courthouse in a while because of, you know, COVID yeah. and whatnot. But after my hearings or whatever, walking by and if something's going on, I'll just pop in and sit down and be like, hey, what's going on in here? And just watch. And if you mm-hmm. pick up a nugget, cool. And yeah. if it's interesting, you stay. And That doesn't happen at the doctor's office. <laughs> like I've been, I've been practicing law for a little bit, and I've never thought of that. Yeah, that's a really good. That's a really good like way to like encapsulate what what we do. Yeah, and it also scares people away. <laughs> it's like, oh no, I don't. Okay, yeah, I don't want that. Yeah, that's interesting. So, how'd you go from then coaching at Tulane? What's next in the story? So then I started. I worked as a consultant for the NCAA um, because I knew uh, I knew that coaching basketball wasn't the end for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was a consultant for the NCAA and I actually worked with the NCAA in helping student athletes transition from college to getting a job. So there's companies out there and I'm assuming this, they, they're still wanting to hire student athletes because of those intangible skills that we talked about back then it was Pfizer. And if you remember enterprise rental car used yeah. to show a bunch of commercials showing how they would transition and that they would, and even now I will go and I'll ask them like, what sport did you play? And almost every one of the people that work at enterprise rental car has some type of athletic experience. And so I was kind of the middleman between, uh, 
athletic departments and their student athletes and finding folks for like Pfizer, Stryker and other companies. And so I would go on campus and do a presentation about these are the skills you've learned as being a student athlete. And this is how you sell it on your resume and in an interview. Because a lot of student athletes, because the grades may not be as high, we don't, we're not able to get summer internships because we're preparing for the next season. Our resumes don't look like a, a regular student's resume. And if you're a student athlete, part of you is like, I'm not the best, so I'm not, I don't know how to compete and there's nothing I can do. But I would teach them how to sell their sk- special skill set, which is actually what employers wanted. And so I would make that connection. And that's how I met my husband, Ed. And then we then, he was in Missouri. And so I moved to Missouri. And how I got to law school was that when I moved to Missouri, again, I'm from High Point, I don't know how to drive in snow. (laughs) (laughs) And so I had to start, I couldn't travel all across the country because we lived in Columbia, Missouri, and I couldn't drive to St. Louis or Kansas City with snow or weather um, to go do the presentation. So I started doing pharmaceutical sales. And as I was doing that, the drug that I was selling that um, competed against z that tells you how freaking good I did, um, <laughs> the, it went off the market. And so I was talking to one of my doctors, Dr. Franklin, at, down at uh, Cape Girardeau. And I remember talking to him and I said, okay, look, this got jobs going away. I need another job. He goes, why are you doing this? I was like, because I love this man and I live in Missouri. He goes, you need to go to medical school or law school. I said, okay. That narrows it down because I don't like the sight of blood. Mm. So then I called my husband. I said, what do you think about me going to law school? He said, you should do it. And so then we went over to the de- the associate dean at the law school, and I said, I'd like to – how do you, how do, you do this? Because as a student athlete, they took care of all that. Yeah, right. All the applications, and they just show up and take the the SAT. And so he literally said, well, we've already selected our class, but if you do well on the LSAT and stay black, I can get you in. I said, well, hell, I got one of those. Damn. And <laughs> Wait, so, did you say stay black? Yes. <laughs> yes. And I said, I got that. And so I then literally went to Barnes & Noble. Remember when you could only get a book from Barnes & Noble? Yeah. Went and got all the, the study stuff and then sat at the conference table and it would be my coffee table and studied. And obviously I did well and um, started law school and there you go. Man. I know. (laughs) You didn't know you'd get all that. That's that's good though. You know, because there's a a couple things that jump out of me, but I, I I went, I had a traditional law school experience. I went to undergrad. I took a legal communications class. I was a pre-med major. Mm-hmm. I was like, biology stinks and this is super fun. Mm-hmm. Flipped my major to um, political science. Got a, a uh, Matt Callagher, who's the managing partner at Baker Hostetler down in mm-hmm. Houston, became my um, advisor. And he was in college at, at, at law school at South Texas at the time. And off we go. I graduate from HBU. I go to mm-hmm. Baylor. I'm a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I remember from being in law school and as a traditional student was the non-traditional students crushed. Yes. Mm-hmm. Right? Because I was just there like, huh, I'm just a student. I'm doing mm-hmm. a student thing. But non-traditional students understood the stakes. Yeah. And man, I'm, I'm envious of that mindset mm-hmm. going into law school, really understanding the stakes, knowing that you're about, you're equipping yourself for the rest of your life. Cause I was just going through just classes. I just need to get a grade and get yeah. out of here. And um, I oftentimes think, man, if I could go back to law school, 
I would learn a lot you, more. You've kind of done okay for yourself. No one's feeling sorry for you, Stuart. <laughs> that's right. That's right, partner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> just saying. I'm not, that's, I, I didn't mean to turn that into that. But, but yes, tradition, non-traditional students crushed. And, yeah. And so, all right, so law school in Missouri? Yeah. Okay, and then obviously you end up in here, Texas. Texas somehow. Yeah, so... Um, and law school wasn't tough enough. So my husband and I decided, you know what, let's have a baby that first year in law school. Cause oh, that first year in law school really doesn't matter. Right? No, it's Stuart, not hard. Not yeah. It's not hard at all. <laughs> Those first year grades don't matter at all. No. And so, uh, we had Ava my second year in law school and then Ed works in college athletics. And so in 2006, he became the, I can't remember his exact title, but, uh, associate commissioner over Big 12 football. And so Ed played football at Nebraska 90 to 94 and was a national champion and the captain of the team. Did a little shout out to my honey. There you go. And, um, and so that's how we got here in 2006. So if you can remember the market in 2006, it kind of tanked. Mm-hmm. And so I've got a two-year-old in tow and I f- had to finish up my last semester at SMU. Because I wasn't done at law school when, when we had to move here in 2006. So finished up at SMU in 2006. So that's a lot. <laughs> that a <laughs> that lot. was a lot Be- going on. Yeah, because you come out into the, into the job market yeah. when it's... Yeah, that was... And it's very similar to what the market looks like right now or six or eight months ago with COVID that, the, you know, firms weren't hiring. Yeah. And, and so I was fortunate through networking to find a product liability firm that spun off from Vincent and Elkins. Mm-hmm. And so I was their only associate. And I was very fortunate there that I got a lot of experience as a baby lawyer that baby lawyers really don't get yeah. anymore, taking depositions, traveling and doing hearings and things of that sort. And so I'm, then I, I was there for, I think, a couple of years and then realized I wanted to be at a more stable, larger firm. And I moved to Cox Smith, which is Dykema, and um, had an amazing experience at that firm. But again, I came to the legal game late, and I wanted to get trial experience. So um, I can't—I don't know the name of the firm now. It's, it, but it, I went to Bickle and Brewer, yeah, um, which is kind of a bet the litig- bet the business litigation Rambo style firm, mm-hmm. and learned an amazing amount of lessons. There And so I was there for a little bit, and then I decided it's time, but there was no business development there at the firm. It was only Bill that that brought in the business, and I kind of wanted to have a little bit to do with my destiny, and Mm -hmm. so I knew I needed to go to a firm that had a platform that would allow me to generate my own book of business. So I left, and I went to White Wiggins, which is the oldest uh, minority-owned law firm in Dallas. I think they're now pushing 25 years and then um, after I left there, and I went to Estes Thorne and Carr, which is the the oldest woman-owned law firm in town. And then in 2017, started my firm. Gotcha. At what point? Let me back up. They didn't teach that class in law school. <laughs> they did not about how if you want to control your own destiny, you need to have clients. They not. They didn't even talk about that. Man, that's a real miss for law schools. Yeah, that's a real miss. Well. Um, over at SMU, they have a small and mid-sized firm externship. And for the last two years, I've spoken there, and it's been about business development. Now, again, that is it's directed to, to students that are going to go to small and mid-sized firms, not big firms. Yeah. Um, but 
you have no matter what firm you go to at some point, six, seven years out, you got to start generating some business Mm -hmm. or you're going to need to find the door. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, again, I think maybe it goes back to what you said earlier about being a non-traditional student. I went into my first legal job thinking differently. I knew that at some point I was going to have to start marketing and selling myself and, and after getting the skills, being able to build a book of business. Right. So you start building that book of business and you start thinking, man, I'm, I think I want to make this leap of faith and start my own gig. Yeah. So I, it got to a point where I wanted, I, I started visualizing the type of firm that I wanted to be. And I didn't want to be a law firm. I wanted to be a legal business and I wanted to run a law firm like a business And that means, you know, being a responsible corporate citizen. That meant spending more time with training young attorneys um, at their craft, which is not something that big firms um, really do anymore. I remember, you know, literally sitting at the knee of a partner and learning how to take a deposition or learn how to draft things. But the the business of the legal profession kind of takes you away from actually training people. And that goes back to my coaching, right? I want to coach up um, young attorneys and so that they, when they go into court or if they leave my firm and go to another firm, they go, she came from Stewart law group. Mm-hmm. She, she's going to know how to write or she's going to know how to make an argument or something like that. Because at Bickle and Brewer, people went and, would recruit us just because they knew the type of work we were doing and the type of training that Bill and them were putting us through and and they wanted to hire us. And I, I want the same thing when people leave Stuart Law Group. You touched on something that I think is really important there, which is, and we, we did an episode on a few, ba- a few back on um, mentorship. Yeah. But what, what does that look like at the Stuart Law Group? What is, what is the, and not, don't tell me your secret sauce, but mm-hmm. like what does mentorship look like in terms of training young people uh, training young attorneys, how do, how do you do it? Yeah, so it's a it's a large investment of time uh, that we, that we do with our firm. So our fir- our our uh, young associates have less billable hours at the beginning because we understand that if you put a large number of billable hours on them, and then try to tell them you're going to train them, it, the the pressure of meeting those hours with the training really doesn't work. I mean, it's kind of opposites. Mm-hmm. And so we start them out with lower hours, um, billable hour requirements. And it it's really hiring partners and of counsel that understand that that is a part of our business model. Um, you know, a lot of firms say we have a no a-hole policy. Well, we have a partners are to train young attorneys. And that means deposit, they're doing the deposition outline. They're, they're going to depositions again, non-billable time, right? So you may sit in a deposition for six hours. That's six hours that they can't bill. You can't bill onto the client. Um, taking the time, explaining to them how long it's going to take to draft a motion for summary judgment, for example, Mm -hmm. it takes forever. And so if you want them to be able to do that, they have to start well in advance because then you're going to have to draft and revise and revise and revise. And if you're not giving them that head start, you're never going to meet your actual business deadline of I've got to get that draft to the client by this time so that we can deal with their revision. So it's just a lot of pre-planning on certain things. And, you know, Actually, during COVID, I think I've been a better coach because we can just jump because I don't have to run around and do all this business development stuff 
lunches, breakfast, lunch, and dinner repeat. And I can, I'm at home mm-hmm. and I can just teams with them and say, okay, let's walk through your, what you drafted here. Let me explain how your argument should be set up versus how you did it. And, um, it's just a big investment of time, but I think it's important to the profession. And I also think it's important to minority minorities and women who, you know, the numbers for commercial litigation are really, really low. And so I'm just, I'm just trying to help us out and trying to increase those numbers. Yeah. The, um, lots of, lots of good stuff in there. The people don't stop down enough. Right. Everybody's too busy. Yeah. And I feel like, Maybe it's all professions, but I think the legal profession is really kind of just spun too fast. Yeah. Um, I'm going to blame it on BlackBerry. Yeah. But it just kind of spun us too fast. And now we don't slow down enough. We don't sl- stop down and say, Hey, come with me. Yeah. Right. And it, it's just, it's all different. And taking that approach is beneficial for those lawyers. I mean, you know, this, it's beneficial for those lawyers. It's beneficial for your firm because mm-hmm. you need other people who can help and work and competently perform the work so that you can grow and. Yeah. And I don't know why people lose sight of that and the necessity of it. Yeah. And it's everything has to be perfect. Like everybody has this mindset, everything has to be perfect and they can't make mistakes. So we have a saying at our firm and it really takes a long time with type A personalities. And I think if you said this to any type A personality, it's fail fast, get up and go. And that I know that I'm pushing you, and it goes back to sports. I know I'm asking you to run faster than you think you can run, and you may stumble and fall, but that is a part of the growth process. And so I'm always having to tell young attorneys, and then especially uh, people that transition that have worked at other firms, that I know I'm asking you to do something you've never done before, and I don't expect you to be perfect, but you're going to fail. You're going to fall down, but you're going to need to get up. And I understand in that get up process, you're going to have to dust yourself off. You're going to have to deal with, oh, my God, I'm not perfect. I got to make, you know, I got to fix this. But then you got to go. And that's what you do in sports. One thing that's really interesting is that once I give feedback to an attorney or someone from staff, I've moved on just like a coach comes and gets and you come off the court. I get in your face like, what are you doing? You didn't box out, blah, blah, blah. But then I'm on to the next play. Yeah. They're still dealing with with what they what they think they did wrong, and it'll it, it's funny it'll come back around to me, and I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. What did what what did what is she saying? I'm uh, well, she's upset because I said I'm yeah, that's over. We're, we've moved on to the next thing. Yeah. There's no grudges here. We right. don't have time for that. Right. Yeah. The um c- growth doesn't happen in your comfort zone. No. Is right. Kind of what you're saying. And, yeah. And, again, basketball. Loving this. Kev's just mm-hmm. watching the basketball go on. <laughs> yeah, right yeah. But the, uh, the, it's the idea, um, Hayes is in the garage. It's my 11 year old. Hayes was mm-hmm. in the garage the other night. He's, um, he's probably going to be a two. Mm-hmm. He's working on his handle a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you got to go so fast you mess up. Exactly. You can't, you can't, you're not like just doing that rhythmic, like you're not, you're there's, not doing it. No, right. And, and you, you have to just, Lay it all out there and it, but you, law firms aren't safe places though, right? And so mm-hmm. that's what I'm creating at Stewart Law Group, that it's a safe place for you to make a mistake and you, t- for you to get to the next level, you must make a mistake. And everybody that's at that level that you want to get to have all made mistakes. It's like that Michael Jordan quote, how many shots he missed, how many last second shots he missed, you know, but if he wouldn't have taken them, he wouldn't be Michael Jordan. Right. You're, you're giving your people an opportunity to make those mistakes, but at the same token, 
you're promoting coaching and mentorship within the ranks, which, you know, the lower billable hours, I don't operate that like that in construction, but the rule remains the same. A lot of people bring new blood into their industry and just throw them off into the deep end and then wonder why yeah. they didn't swim. Exactly. And it's because we didn't invest them in, in them. And it, you, you're not able to pass down that knowledge to from generation to generation when we don't take the time to coach and mentor. So I love that you're doing that with yeah. new people into your firm. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just, it, that's the secret sauce that I think with growing a firm is that they, they've got to see me working hard, which I, I'm pretty sure they do, but they also got to, I've also got to be with them and mentor and teach them and explain, you know, what I want. Um, Versus just saying, do it, do it. And then, I mean, and you got to create a safe environment and, and it, it, it takes a while because they have to trust that when I say fail fast, get up and go that I mean it. Yeah. So what is it? I wrote down when you're talking, law firms are not a safe space. That's what, right. And I, I, I think I threw my hands up in the air when you said it, cause I was like, eh, I feel that. So what is it? What is it that makes it feel safe? Uh, that first of all, they have to believe that when I'm telling them that they can fail, that they can. Um, it takes a lot of pre-planning, meaning, like I said, backing out deadlines so far in advance for them to get you a first draft of something that you're not dealing with. Oh gosh, I just got this and it's a mess. Yeah. In addition to, I've got to get it to the client tomorrow. Right. I try to put in at least, oh, excuse me, at least five days between the time a young associate gives me a draft of something versus when I need to know that I got to send it to the client. That gives them enough time to work through their failures and to get it to the point that I need to get it to. It's also about tone. It's also about who you're talking to. I can talk to one associate and I can be as blunt as possible. Another one, I've got to kind of sidestep into that um, uncomfortable conversation about, you know, grammar or organization of how you made your argument. And so you got to know all your people differently, too. It's kind of like kids. Like, you don't treat all your kids the same way. It's the same thing um, with all of our associates and, and of the of counsel that I work with. Like, I've got to treat people. I got to meet them where they are. Mm -hmm. And I've got to treat them with respect. And after a while, I think they're going to believe that I care about them. Um, it's my Angelo. It's not what you say. It's not what you do. It's how you make people feel. And that's, I'm all in on that. And so I spend a lot of time building those relationships, which is what you also need for business development too, though, is only build. I mean, success is about how many relationships authentically can you build? Hmm. And that's strong leadership. I think a lot of leaders fail because they want everybody to morph to them. But right. as a leader, you're a servant to your people. So mm -hmm. you need to be a situational leader yeah. and play to the strengths and weaknesses of everybody on your team. Yeah. I mean, servant leadership is at the core of who I am as a person. I, you know, I tell my attorneys, I said, you know, we have a JD behind our name, but we are, we're just a fancy waitress or waiter. <laughs> and we're serving our clients and, you know, we have to manage their expectations. They, they, they may be busy in the kitchen and they may not get that motion done uh, or back to them in a day or two. So you got to manage their expectations. You got to man. I mean, and the same thing for me with my associates, I got to manage their expectations of, you know, associates can start. I don't know if you, you feel the same way, Stuart, but they think they show up and they're going to be at first chair at trial. Got to manage their expectations. Yeah. 
you know, so um, servant leadership is is really key to me as a person, especially as me as a leader of the firm. Yeah, it's all good stuff. I was checking out your website uh, before coming on, and I saw the visualizing success. And then you said when you were starting the Stewart Law Group, visualizing the type of business you wanted to run. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure more and more people become attractive to that vision. But when you bring somebody on board, how do you get them to visualize success? Do you just paint a picture for them or have them paint the picture for you? Or what yeah. does that look like? So it's a little bit of both. So we, being a legal business, if you go to like our Stuart Law Group page on LinkedIn or Twitter or Instagram, wherever, all those places where they are, you you see our post and you kind of know who we are as a firm and what what matters to us. We use a lot of quotes. We use a lot of sports sayings. Um, to motivate people, we're focused on um, DEI initiatives and, and women and all of those things. So when you come to our firm, if you've done your research, you kind of know what you're walking into. And so we have a very strong culture, which, I do, again, I don't think all firms have. And so we really have a very strong culture of servant leadership. And everything we talk about kind of dry, it's kind of like Nike. You, you know, when you buy a pair of Nikes or you hear Nike or you watch a Nike commercial, it makes you feel some way. And that's how I want Stuart Law Group for our employees as well as our clients to feel a certain way, a good way, obviously, um, when they talk about the firm. One thing that we've done a lot, I did it before, but really being everybody, you know, working from home is every week we have a team meeting where we Literally, I call it a welfare check just so I can see everybody. <laughs> and we, you know, we have we have wins and losses, hits or misses that we talk about each week. Um, we highlight people. We have, you know, billboard type information for folks about how they're doing. But during the week, if I come across a quote or uh, there's a beautiful Kobe Bryant um, uh, interview that I saw a, like literally a year, like two days before we all had to go home that talked about his success, I'll send it to you guys. It was life-changing for me. I wasn't a, really a Kobe fan, really, until I, I watched this. And it talked about how hard it is to work and how you must fail and all of these things. So you started our firm, you have to watch that video, and you have to tell us what you got from it. Brene Brown is someone that I also listen to all her podcasts. If she knew how invaluable she has been to starting my firm, um, <laughs> she would be freaking out because <laughs> when something goes wrong, I'm like, YouTube, Brene Brown, vulnerability. And just whatever comes up, I watch it. And so there's a interview she did for Inc. Uh, that it's like 12 minutes long and she talks about the importance of being vulnerable and how she was... Uh, with a a SEAL team or with some group and she was asking them, what have you ever accomplished that you accomplished without being vulnerable? And the Navy, Navy SEAL guy raised his hand and said, every time I've done anything that's worthwhile, I've been vulnerable. And so that goes with the fail fast, get up and go. And so we just over and over and over again, we reinforce just like a good trial attorney. We reinforce our message, which is literally just basically our culture. Mm-hmm. But again, firms don't do that. And that's why I kind of say I wanted to create a business. And so I read a lot about business things and marketing and branding and things of that sort and culture so that we can continue to do it. Because before, I would say at one time and not come back to it. And then I'd wonder why it wasn't resonating with the team. 
you got to It's got to be. It's got. You got to live and breathe it. Mm-hmm. We had a we had a guy in the chair a few weeks ago that said if you're if your team isn't annoyed by how often you're bringing up the vision and core values, you're probably not bringing it up enough. I, I, and I say, I know y'all about to roll your eyes at me, <laughs> but fail fast, get up and go. Yeah, no, and, and it's and that is true. And I'll be sitting because starting your own law firm is like having another kid, and mm. so and it it's a newborn that never freaking grows up. And so late at night, you're sitting there thinking about what can you do to to make it better. And I. That late at night, I'll send them. I love those quotes that are a picture too, and so I will screenshot that and and I'll send it to the team. And I know they're sitting there like, "Goodness gracious, this lady she never <laughs> sleeps." Well, Thanks but, for the two a.m. poster from <laughs> exactly, Nike. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. What am I supposed to be reading into that? No, nothing. <laughs> Just <laughs> well, and not to to well to Kevin's I mean, daily, daily motivational, right? Like he does it religiously, mm-hmm. and they don't all like jump off the page to me. But every once in a while, I'll be like, mm-hmm. "Boom." Yeah. Right. And I'll respond to Kevin and be like, that one crushed. Actually, I just do plus, plus one. Plus yeah. one. And my yeah. love language is affirmation. So when I see his plus one reply, I'm like, yes, yes! got it. <laughs> mm. but, but the point is like just the persistent pursuit of it. Yeah. Every once in a while, you, you just hit different people. And, and as long as you eventually hit everybody. Is, yeah. Know. I mean, I think in, in mine for teams is you can do a heart or a thumbs up. So I'm always looking at how many hearts versus thumbs up I get for my <laughs> affirmation. Um, you know what teams needs, by the way? What? Thumbs down. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing Microsoft. All right. I'm going to get us in the ditch and then back out of the ditch. Okay. I was not a Dirk fan okay. until, until I saw Perfect Shot. Have you seen it? Mm-mm. Watch it. Okay. And I was not a Kobe fan. Until I saw Kobe's Muse. Have you Oof. seen it? Have not seen it. You've seen Kobe's it's Muse? Awesome. It's yeah. really good. I okay. would commend that to your watching. I okay. think it was a, sh- might be kind of hard to find. I think it was a Showtime bit. Okay. Um, but man, it talked about, at least my takeaway from Kobe's Muse was, it talked about how he emulated Michael so much. Mm-hmm. And he just turned into that like Mamba mentality and just mm-hmm. mashed everybody. Mm-hmm. And after he hung a couple banners and realized that he was kind of isolated, mm-hmm. he looked back and thought, man, maybe... Maybe I should have been doing more mentoring and yeah. bringing people into the fold. And right. so that's like when I, I watched it, I was like, well, yeah, with a bit of retrospect, you see a, a more mild Mamba yeah. down the balance and down the stretch yeah. of his career. And when I watched the video, the movie, I was like, ooh. That's yeah, I good. need to watch that because I was never a Kobe fan because that was what my perception of him was the first one that it was all about Kobe all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm not a fan of, of those types of players. But then um, with his unfortunate death, I've been reading more about him and how, I mean, random athletes in various sports had stories about him texting them and saying, great job tonight at some small town women's basketball game. And he somehow knew that she broke a record. Yeah. And that is who I, like, that's me. That's who I want to be and my best self is reaching out to people and saying, giving them high fives. And they're like, how does she even know about that? And so once I realized that he, that was the type of person he was, and that's just not what the media was putting out about him. I became a huge fan and any interview that he does, or there, you know, you, if you go to YouTube and type Kobe Bryant uh, motivation, I mean, there are so many different videos and interviews that he's done. 
I mean, how hard he works. Like when he talks about, I get up at this time, and by the time these people wake up and go to their first practice, I've already practiced four hours. No matter if they start doing what I'm doing, they can never catch up with me. Mm-hmm. There's a good... Um, it's like, wow. Is, um, I think it's Jay Williams, the guy who played at Duke, who's yeah. a motorcycle accident. Yeah. Have, you, have you heard his Kobe story? No. It's a really it's it's around that idea mm-hmm. about how um I guess they were playing in L.A. He was with the Bulls for a little while. They were playing mm-hmm. in L.A. and he was trying to beat Kobe in the gym. And no matter what he did, I like, did hear this story. Every yeah. time he would show up, Kobe would already be sweating. And mm-hmm. eventually, that I think later they you know meet up and talk about it. And he's like, I was just getting there so you knew I was out working you every day. Yeah, that's it. Like it was like he wasn't even there that long, but he was there long enough to know in your mind. I mean and. Or trial attorney strategy, I'm there. Like you think, oh my God, she's still there. Yeah. Mental right. warfare there. It's yeah. Mental warfare. Mental, and that really, I mean, that was another thing that he did. He, I mean, he was so smart and learned all these languages. I mean, he was, he was more of a nuanced person than I thought he was. Yeah. And then the muse, the, the show, the muse is what broke that down for me. It was, mm-hmm. I had the privilege, I guess, of, Figuring that out before his death, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I saw him in his later years uh, and after his retirement in a different light mm-hmm. than I had seen previously. Yeah. Um, all right, I'm going to bring us back on track here. Okay. The, now that was a good little. That was a good yeah, little. Lots of lots yeah. of rabbit trails. Mm-hmm. Um, the last two times I've seen you, yeah, once was at the um, I think it was at the State Bar Construction Convention, yeah, and then at the Dallas Bar Association Construction yeah. Law Section meeting, mm-hmm. uh, you were talking DEI stuff, yeah, and I credit you actually. Uh, with this idea that um, I had been saying, I think I said it on here, I've been saying D and I. Mm-hmm. And I heard you say, no, it's D-E-I yeah. at the construction law, the big construction law section. Mm-hmm. And I was like, huh, well, that's different. And yeah. I was very intuitively listening to that because um, I've just been, I, you're smiling at me like I'm about to say something crazy. <laughs> no, I'm just smiling because you taught me D and I and then corrected me that it was DEI, but now I know I get yeah. the credit to Amy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, anyway, like I've just been really listening to that conversation mm-hmm. in the last 18 months or so. Mm-hmm. And so you speaking into it was one of the reasons I was like, I want you on here to talk about what you're doing in that area, why it's important, why it's important to you, what shortcomings, failings, areas of growth, all that. So mm-hmm. I'm just going to hand grenade that at you and let you talk and then we'll we'll, we'll sort it out. Okay. So it first was diversity and inclusion. Uh, And inclusion to me, again, going back to sports, when we would have a recruit show up for camp uh, on camp for on campus visit, they don't know us. And our job was to make them feel a part of the team and welcome. And so our coach literally coached us how to do that. So when Stuart walks in, Bring Stuart into the conversation. You know, Stuart may not have anything to say, but bring him in, let him feel a part of it. And so that's what inclusion means when people say we need to have a more diverse environment. Not that just people show up and they, they're, they're different because of where they grew up or their racial background or they're a man or a woman or, or whatever. That's the diversity part. But then the inclusion part is that you bring them in and let them feel a part of the team. And so, I, again, I learned that from athletics because I remember before our coach told us to do that, as a team, we would all be cliquish and talk to each other. And then the recruit that we wanted to join our team that was being recruited by Carolina, they're sitting over there in the corner. And so inclusion is literally opening yourself up and say, hey, come over, let's talk about that. 
Yeah. Let's talk about this. What do we have in common? And so now it is somehow, I don't know when, it changed from D and I to D-E-I, and the E is for equity. Because I think through this, through the the changes that our country is going through right now, there is this, they're taking opportunities from me and want more. And that's not what anybody is saying. What we're saying is that we just want to be equal. We want equal opportunities. We want to work hard for it. We want to earn it, but we want it to be equal. So we want diversity. We want equal opportunities and we want to be included. And when you think about that, think about if your child shows up at, at the, at, you know, at the basketball court and they're stand, they don't, they're new to this, new to the school. They don't know anybody. They're out there shooting baskets or whatever. You talked about your son. He's working on his handles and he's good. But that group that was there first never invites him over. Mm-hmm. They look over and they say, oh, that's the new kid. But they never give him an equal shot to play. And they never include him in the game. Right. And that's all. That's really what DEI is about. It's not about taking an opportunity from someone else. It's about giving everybody an opportunity when they can have it. And so translating that into your business, that's kind of what you're doing with the platform. We had a uh, Nicole Little on a few weeks ago, and she's a female construction executive, and mm-hmm. she had no role model in the space, so yeah. she recognizes that she becomes the role model. Yeah. And I'm seeing some similarities with your career path with Stewart Law Firm. Now you're showing like, this is where you can be, mm-hmm. and I can provide those opportunities within my firm, but at least somebody to look up to within the lawyer space. Yeah, so... Our firm is the only minority and women-owned law firm that handles commercial litigation matters on the defense side. As my daughter says, I represent the man. Totally okay with representing the man because they pay the bills. So, <laughs> and she's okay with it. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, th- so I don't, from being a minority woman, I do not have a role model to help me with the firm. So, but I rely on people like Mike Bassett and um, all types of mentors that kind of help me figure out what I'm doing and how to make things better. Or even just, what what are you doing in regard to bonuses? You know, you know, just random, how do you run a legal business type questions that have been great. So, yeah. What, um, I've asked this question, we've had a a women on and uh, Brian was on early and I asked this question every time because I'm just a white dude. But what what is it that you would want listeners or just people who aren't black women mm-hmm. to know about what it's like being a black woman? That like, let me say that differently. I I didn't I don't realize a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, there's things over the last year, and I've been like, well, I never I never realized that. I never thought about that. Or I never perceived that you thought about it that way. And mm-hmm. so I've just been asking that question to everybody I can. Yeah. Tell me what I don't know. Yeah. So let me throw that to you. Tell me what I don't know. Yeah. So I think when when people talk about systemic racism um, or that is in- institutionalized, that negatively impacts everybody. And I think when people hear that term, just like when they hear DEI, they think that it's only to the benefit of minorities. But I always say and share that there is no real diversity unless everybody is, in, is involved and, in, and included. And when we talk about trying to increase and make everybody feel more comfortable, we have to have those uncomfortable conversations about this this issue. 
And, um, and so what you can do is when you, when you have a question, because there's going to be things that, and this last year has really rocked us as a country. There's going to be questions that you have. And we go back to that safe place. Like if you look around your social environment and you don't have anyone that doesn't look like you, then you, you need to, first of all, think about your kids because that's the environment they're, they're living in. But think about who is in your, business circle, because we spend so much time at business, that you can just say, hey, let's go have a cup of coffee and let's have a conversation Mm -hmm. and find that safe place to have these difficult conversations. I promise you that there are more people that we are wanting to have that engaging conversation about these issues, but it's uncomfortable. So people, they don't want to be vulnerable and have it. But I would say, if if you want to know something, you and I are friends, you text me and say, hey, this is on my mind. This is bothering me. I, I, I don't think I'm seeing this the same way or I'm not understanding this. And we both have to come into the conversation with grace and being vulnerable that we're going to probably say the wrong thing with the right intention. Yeah, the, the Ooh, heart's man. there. Yeah, yeah. You, I mean, and that's the part like, we're in such a cancel culture, which I cannot stand, that no one gets to make mistakes, right, right or wrong. Like there should be a, a space that you have, but it, only until you build a relationship with someone that you can have that conversation with them and say, I did not know that police violence against black men was that bad. Right. And you can say that and it's okay for you to say it or fill in the blank of whatever issue that's out there. Um, but you, so, so for anyone listening, I would say that like, no one's asking you to move mountains here. You see that? Uh, um, well done. Well yeah, done. You see that? Um, but there's someone in your circle, your business circle, be intentional about building a authentic relationship with them so that you can have a conversation about these tough issues that, that you have. Yeah. Well, I've been saying for almost a decade, we've lost the ability to have discourse in America. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And they want it that way because then that keeps the status quo. Mm-hmm. If we're not talking, we're not making things better. Mm. It's It's been... It's been a weird year for me because like I'm trying to like have these conversations, but I, I know I'm saying all the wrong things sometimes. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I've felt like I've prefaced a lot of things I've said by saying like, I know I'm about to say something that's stupid that's, or ignorant. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sorry in advance, but yeah. I, I want to know about XYZ. That's perfect. But that's perfect to do, like for you to go into it and say, I'm about to step all over it. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't think this is an issue. Can you just ex- help me understand? Yeah. And I mean, I think that that vulnerability of being able to be told another version of the story and and give it the credence that it, like you can be moved from your position. You know, so much right now is that I'm on team R or team D and I've got to stay on my team. You know, it's kind of, it goes back to sports. Like if someone, if, if one player on one team does the exact same foul <laughs> as the other team, it's still a foul, right. right? And so we can't, we have to be able to call ourselves out when we've made mistakes. We've got to be able to call out someone on our team like, yeah, that was a bad move or, 
yeah, we shouldn't have said it that way. But I think if you preface conversations with, okay, I'm going to go there. I may not say it the right way, but I don't understand fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. I think you're in a, I think you're in a safe place to be able to do that. Everyone. And I, I, I had a, a, um, conversation with, uh, with the ACC and there was various different in-house counsel and, and they were all, all black women. And I asked them, I said, there's a lot of white guys listening right now that feel like I want to be a part of the solution. How do I do it? I said, would you have any issue with, you know, someone t- texting you or calling you or sending you an email and say, I'd like to go have a cup of coffee and see how I can you know, create a more diverse environment in my legal department or whatever. And to a person, everybody said, please call me. Like yeah. we're literally waiting <laughs> for, to help. But, you know, it'd be weird if I was like, you know, Stuart, I looked at your website and I think you need some more diversity. It'd be weird, right? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little bit about you have to open the door to your vulnerability that there is a lot that you don't understand and because minorities live in a majority world we understand more about how it works than you understand about what we've had to deal with mm, that's a really nicely said that's, you know what i mean i know exactly like what we're you're like we're watching y'all all the time because you're the majority think about if you grew up in a world or your kids grew up in a world where they were the minor where they were the minority then they would be watching what everybody else is. If it's, it's, for example, if you grew up in another country, they would be what if Paris, they'd be watching how French people act. Same thing here. Like we, we're waiting to for for white people to understand. We're not making it up in regard to the fact that when my daughter learned how to drive, like we had to have the conversation with her. That is not a Johnson and Johnson or whatever commercial. That is real life happening. And I know it's not happening in your homes. I know it's not. And then when we saw the videos of last week with the the um, service guy in, in Virginia that got pulled over and, and all the other things, I had to have a conversation with my husband last week. Like, okay, I know when, you, when you're going to play golf, you may have a couple at the 19th hole. Please be careful. Mm-hmm. And it's not be careful because you're going to get a DUI. Please be careful so you make it home. That's the difference. That's the different conversation. And, and that is real. And so we're sitting here trying to make you understand that this is what we deal with on a daily basis. And so that's why you feel that frustration from minorities that we have to be like, okay, here we go again. Right. Man, I, all those things are true. Um, Cause I'm not having that conversation. I, I, I never in 42 and a half years have been afraid to be pulled over. I've never worried about it. I've never thought twice about, you know, like I just, mm-hmm. I don't. But the the more I've asked that question, the more I've said, well, what about this situation? Or what, what about George Floyd? Or what mm-hmm. about, you know, people have said, no, that's for real. It's real. Uh, we had Wes Butler on and he has an adopted ch- uh, child, uh, Malachi, who's, um, he's, um, I think he's four. No, he's William's age. He's 13 mm-hmm. and he, he's black. Mm-hmm. And he's like, That's, I have to have that conversation with him, but it's never a conversation that I've had, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, oh my gosh. It's, it, anyway, like that's, yeah. so, that's something. Like, I don't know that. Yeah. I, and then the other part is that you should not, this goes back to the, the impact of systemic racism as an institution. You should not feel 
guilty that you don't know it because how would you know it? Right. Exactly. And, and so to me also, um, you feel there's this guilt that you don't know these things, but you're not supposed to know them. So it's okay not to know them. So the response is, let me learn more about it. Yeah. So then I can educate myself about it and understand this is a real thing. But what I think a lot of people do because it's uncomfortable is they just say, oh, it, it doesn't happen. Blue lives matter. No one's saying blue lives don't matter. Right. I mean, it's, it's the thing like with cancer in August and September, breast cancer month or whatever it is, football players put on pink shoes. No one from prostate cancer is like, what do you mean? What about prostate cancer? <laughs> no, no. Right now, this is the focus. Breast cancer is the focus just for this month. We'll, we'll go to prostate. But, you know, it, it, but we have to be able to have these conversations and you have to be able to understand that there's a lot that you don't know. But unfortunately, you have to educate yourself about them. And that means you have to ask the difficult questions. You need to Google. You need to read these books. Everybody's putting out a book about this stuff now. Mm. So it's getting to a point where you not knowing is is intentional. Mm. Oh, because that's, that's rich. the information is out there. So at some point, it's like we're talking to our kids. No, you know better mm -hmm. because all these resources are out there. That that you can make your with people podcasts YouTube Google it. That's that's rich because the point you're making is like it's it's okay to not know you you didn't have any reason to know but at some point right that tips over we can't keep having the same conversation yeah, yeah so when I'm back <laughs> <laughs> I told you you know better one of the most recent ones we've had at our house my daughter's three and a half we're upstairs in her playroom and we look around and. It, we just have a conversation like, there's no black dolls in this room. Yeah, yeah. And so we became sensitive to that because our neighbors are black and their daughters are around the same age. And we're like, well, if they ever come over to play, we want them to be comfortable in this mm -hmm. playroom. And it's just more exposure to our daughter. Yeah. So we need to change that. And yeah. I think all of this is starting to help with, you know, her and I having that conversation mm -hmm. and making sure that our daughter's raised in a way that – uh, DEI is a part of her life. Yeah, like, again, going back to institutionally, like, it'd be really hard for you years ago to go even find a black doll right. for your daughter, right? And so it's baked in the cake of things that, there again, you wouldn't even know. Like, you go to the Walmart and you walk down the aisle and you don't see. That's why it was such a big deal and maybe it wasn't a big deal to y'all, but when Disney finally had the Black Princess, mm -hmm. it was a huge deal in the African-American um, Black Panther. I mean, it's 2019, and we're, we finally get <laughs> Black Panther, and it was a huge deal. And, I mean, and it's a celebration for us to have something that, because representation matters. That's the one thing about our firm, like. People seeing me go to trial and, and start a firm and on social media matters because then it shows other people that they can do it because they, you don't see that. You don't see minority women trying cases and things of that on the defense side and that those things. There's this beautiful picture of President Obama and it doesn't matter if you support him or not. That's not the, that's not the point here. But that there's a beautiful picture of him in the Oval Office, and he's leaning down, and this little black boy is touching his hair. And white people may look at that and go, I don't know what that means. 
But for this little black boy to see that Barack Obama, who kind of looks like him and his hair's like him, is the president, changed this young boy's life. And so that representation matters. And that's just a simple picture, but it means a lot in regard to your daughter having dolls that are from various different backgrounds so that when she goes to high school, she'll have, she may have a more diverse group of friends, right? you know, um, and understand things uh, a little bit more and can understand different perspectives. I think that's kind of why we we're in this situation as a country and we're, and we're tussling with each other is that because we have all grown up in our own little section of, and it's all, monochromatic it's all you know the same thing it's like what church is on sunday is the most segregated hour of of the week oh man um you know and so we've got to we've got to do better because life is enriched when we actually are around people that have different experiences and i'm just not talking about race i'm talking about socioeconomic different you know different experiences backgrounds and all of those things there's a lot in there. The um, man, I don't even know where we go out of that. I've, you stumped me. <laughs> Finally, I've been stumped. Well, I could I could talk about when doing all the research um, to get ready for this. LinkedIn, the company page. I was just scrolling and scrolling <laughs> and scrolling through the awards <laughs> and accolades mm-hmm. that you've had in your career. Um, so, <laughs> congratulations on all Thank that. You very much. That is pretty darn impressive. <laughs> Hopefully someday I can have a tenth of those. Um, out of those, are there any that just mean something special to you or there's a special story associated with them? Yeah. So um, one is uh, last year, the Texas uh, Minority Council Program gave me the Trailblazer Award. And that is because of mentorship. Goes back to the coaching. Coaching is nothing but mentorship. And so um, that award meant a lot to me just because I do spend a lot of time trying to mentor people from all walks of life. And so to be recognized on a state level for that means a lot to me. I think that's an important one to notice just based on your servant leadership and the life you're living that Mm -hmm. your favorite award is a trailblazer award that has to do with giving to others. Yeah. I mean, because it takes a lot of time in a profession that wants you to solely focus on the billable hour. And I, you know, I, I, we can't do that. I mean, we just, we're not training young attorneys and we're not, I mean, we're servicing our clients, but I mean, we've got to be giving back and, and reaching down and pulling people up with us. It's, it's, it is a prolific problem in mm-hmm. the legal industry. And I just feel like, I, I know that I say silly lawyer things all the time, but I just feel like it's, it's, it's us. It's mm-hmm. our, like Kev spending time mentoring folks in the office and the guys in the shop are learning and there's protege programs and everybody else is doing it. Yeah. And we're just focused on putting time on a piece of paper to get it out the door. That's true. That's true. Like for us, like I, and the one thing I always have to make sure doesn't happen is that for my people to think that I'm their mentor, I am in a certain way, but you also need a mentor that you can vent about your boss to. <laughs> right. And yeah, so it was funny. I had two of my associates and I brought them in and I said, do you all have mentors? And the other thing about mentors is so that they can understand what's happening to them is happening 
at other law firms, right? right. Like, man, she's tough on me. It's happening everywhere. And so they were like, well, no, we kind of thought you were like, no, I am not. (laughs) I'm your boss. (laughs) And that need you, I'm your boss and your mentor in quotes. But, and so I had to go find them mentor, Mm. mentors. So, and then after that, what you have to do is tell them, how does a good mentee show up? It goes back to what you're saying. If you got to teach and coach people, you just can't say, all right, there's your mentor. Go ahead. Like, how do you be a good mentee? Like, you start the conversation. You reach out to them. They're not going to respond. You figure out another way to reach out to them. You have a plan when you talk to them. You ask for 15 minutes. And then the next time you ask for 30 and you work it up like a relationship. Right. But I've had a lot of mentees that have come to me and, hey. I'm here. I'm here. It's like, okay, well. What are we going to talk about? Why are you here? A lot of fidgeting over this next hour. Oh, yeah. Hour. Oh, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Zero agenda. Exactly. Zero agenda. Well, yeah. that's – go ahead. No, no, no. That's the importance of peer groups too, especially like in your space, in our space. Mm-hmm. When you don't have anywhere to go to within your office walls, do you have that text group or email group or phone call you can yeah. pick up like, hey, I'm dealing with X. Have yeah. you ever dealt with that? Yeah. And I just had that this week. There was an HR related item that came up and I'm like, I'm, I'm going to start with our HR manager and she's in Houston. Mm-hmm. And I call her and she hasn't dealt with it before. So on the phone, I texted my peer group, which is like-minded executives in the construction space. Mm-hmm. Just they don't do glass. They do other trades. Yeah. And while we're on the phone call, people start rifling answers and she's like, how the heck are you coming up with this? I'm like, oh, it's my peer group. I love that. That does not happen in the legal profession. No, it doesn't. It there's, doesn't. There's, there's none of that. There's, there's also this in the legal profession. It's mm. everybody has a certain stature, and you know, the, showing weakness is not one thing that lawyers, especially trial attorneys or litigators, do is to show weakness by even asking a question. And so, no, I, I don't, I don't text a peer group trying to figure out how to do. I don't, is, if one exists, please send me the link. <laughs> well, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what, I don't know that this is going to work or happen, but I reached out to another lawyer who's a managing partner at another firm here in town mm-hmm. this week. Mm-hmm. And I said, hey, Anthony, I'd love to go grab lunch because I want to pick your brain about what it's like being the managing partner at your firm. No, I love that. Like, I, And I keep wanting to kind of get those groups. I've got a friend that over the holiday we talked about that we we're going to start doing that. I think there is a segment of us that are trying to have those conversations. And I think, I think we need to make it happen because there, I mean, there's really no secret sauce. No, it's a business. It's a business. I mean, you know, just do good customer service and know, and and be excellent at your craft. And you and I, you know, when I, my approach to business development, like say you and I were doing a pitch to a company, it's already been determined. (laughs) At a higher level. Yes. Who's going to get that business? So you and I fighting about it doesn't matter. Me undercutting you goes more to who I am as a person versus. but And so, you know, it goes back to the cross over the court and shake your hand and say, all right, Stuart, you better kill that matter. But next one, next RFP we have, I'm going to win that one. Right. And that's it. And it doesn't have to be adversarial. No, it's okay. It's okay. You got that one. In fact, I swore to a creed that said we could... Agree to disagree. That's that, it. Right? Yeah. It's okay. All right. I remembered what got me stumped down earlier. I'm going uh, to punch go. this in there. Um, we were talking about 
having those difficult conversations and the mm-hmm. vulnerability. And I just, like, it just fell out of my brain earlier, but I'm going to make a big tie together for you because Brene Brown. Yes. Did a podcast with Emmanuel Ocho. Yes. Have you heard it yet? I have not. That's on the list. That's on the weekend list. Do you know Emmanuel Ocho? I don't. He is. Oh, you've got to listen to this. Is it called Awkward Conversations? Awkward Conversations with a Black Man. Yes. And he recently wrote a book, did a podcast. Yeah. Um, And he's now on. I think he's doing Fox Sports. He's a very yes. busy man. Yes. Um, and he went to St. What is the the school here in Dallas? St. Mark's. Oh, he's I didn't a, know that. He's St. Mark's grad. I didn't know. Played football at UT. And right around this time last year started Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, where he has, it's, it's at a set, and he invites someone and they talk about race. And they're all on YouTube. One of the first ones was Matthew McConaughey. And I have to tell you, that was one of the only times I've ever seen Matthew McConaughey seem uncomfortable. Oh, really? Um, just, you know, he's very all right, all right, all right. You know, so he's <laughs> always is exuding confidence. And you could tell he, I mean, he, it was a difficult conversation for him to kind of talk about it out loud. And then he had um, the fixer-upper folks on there with their kids mm-hmm. talking about uh, stuff and I mean, it's just, he's like we talked about before, being able to open yourself up and say, okay, Stuart, what do you want to know? Let's mm. talk about it. Yep. Let me tell you what they had interracial relationships. He was, uh, he, he and Oprah, if you haven't seen this, was really good. They had, um, on the Oprah show, it was the two of them and they had these big, huge screens and they had people volunteer. It was, um, white people volunteer to ask him questions and they kind of talked things out like, the N word and what, why can't you use it? And all, why won't you start your own, you know, X, Y, and Z? And they gave the historical perspective and the people were like, Oh, didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So it's really, again, you don't have to pick up a book and, and spend a lot of time reading to try to understand what's going on. You can, I mean, all of those uncomfortable conversations with the black man, with Acho, the one with Oprah, the one with Brene Brown. I mean, you can start to listen to those and it'll really open up your eyes. Yes, I would commend all those to your listening. Mm-hmm. Write that down, Cal. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I already got it. Emmanuel Ocho. I, I was just being silly. I know you wrote it down. Um, all right. Let me, let me kick us kind of t- headed towards the end here. But family, what, what, are, what are y'all up to at home these days? Well, we, we are all vaccinated. Well, Ava's one shot away from being vaccinated. So Ava's 16. So she is now driving. If you see a orange Jeep driving over 35 miles per hour in the DFW area, please <laughs> let me know. Um, she's busy, very busy. So she goes to Townview, um, ISD, which is a magnet school and she's in the science, engineering and math program. And so she's really busy there, but she's doing crew for real crew, not that crew that people said their kids were on the crew team just to try to get scholarships (laughs) for my sports fans out there. So she's actually does crew for Dallas United and loves it. And the way we know she loves it is that they have 5 a.m. practices every day and she gets up by herself and drives herself there. There you go. So she My loves, kind of person. Yeah, yeah right. she loves crew. So she's doing that. And other than that, she's studying like crazy physics, crazy, all the things for science, engineering and math. And, and other than that, she's sleeping mm. because between crew, working out with crew and, you know, her academic um, requirements, she's pretty busy. So Ed, 
Um, he it's it's off season because he he oversees football for the Big Twelve, and so this if I reflect on this time last year, I have to say how amazingly proud I am of my husband watching him figure out how they have a football season during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. I mean. He literally was like Dr. Fauci running around the house with antigens and all this stuff, trying to figure out how they're going to have a safe, you know, environment where people can play football and give us at home something to watch, Mm. but also protect the welfare and safety of everybody associated that shows up on that field every Saturday. And so he was very integral in getting that done. And I was so proud when they... One of the, I think probably one of the proudest days. Well, let me tell this story about Ed. So, Ed played at Nebraska. He was a linebacker, and early on, he we were having this conversation, and he said, "I just, I'm not getting that same rush that I got when I played football." I'm like, "Wait a minute, hold up. If you're looking for a career that makes you feel like you felt when you won the national championship." This is going to be a sad yeah. life for you. <laughs> Good luck, brother. And so, but I say that, but when they had the first Big 12 team kickoff, not the first couple of weeks, but when all the teams were on the field at the same time and they got it done, he was elated the same way as when they won that national championship. So he he's had a big he's had a big year. Yeah, well kudos to Ed because I would say I would have given the football season a zero percent chance of happening right and there were times it was it was i mean it literally was on off on off on off can't happen can't happen and and, you know since we've been at home for so long we're kind of fuzzy about i mean you know there were athletes or a couple athletes you know that passed away they had a heart condition all this stuff was going on while Mm -hmm. we're trying to figure out are we going to have a football season there were other conferences that said nope we're not going to have one and then you had two that said they were and God forbid if something would happen, and then all of the testing, I mean, and remember, there there was no COVID test before COVID. Right. Right? And so you had to figure out who vendors and where to get the COVID test, and how do you administer them at 10 different um, campuses and on the field? Who can be on the field now and who can't? Because normally, that's a, everybody wants to be on the field, but, you know, we can't. Stands. How many people can be in the stands? What's going to be safe? What's going to be unsafe? All those issues they were wrangling with. I'm just so proud of the Big 12 and just, you know, obviously not being in on the meetings, but just being in the same house with my husband having the meetings. I'm just so proud of what they were able to do. Yeah, that was awesome. It was big feat. Basketball kind of pulled it off too. Thank yeah, you. yeah. You know, and, you know, football going through it and allowed basketball and they were right there. Jeff, who was the commissioner, was right there watching and learning everything so that they could smoothly transition into basketball. And I know everybody was really excited that March Madness happened. You know, last year, Ed was at the Big 12 championship game when COVID happened and everybody had to come home and, you know, the lives that that impacted, you know, from people's jobs Mm -hmm. to, you know, all, all t- vendors and their businesses and all that stuff. So I know everybody's really happy to at least be able to watch and, and be a part of March Madness. Yeah, that was awesome. I, and, and we bring a title home to the Big 12. Boom. How about exactly. that? Exactly. Sick them. Yeah. But but we love all 10 teams of the Big 12 the same. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
Um, all right, uh, books. We, we we sort of wrap up with books, and the one big thing is kind of normally how we end. Mm-hmm. Is there some? We talk a lot about books on here. What are you mm-hmm. reading? What's influential to you? Is there something that you think, man? If if they're listening and you need a good book, go read. Yeah. You, okay. So two of them, and uh, I know this be shocking. It was sports, but I wrote them down too. So uh, Phil Knight, who created Nike, um, wrote a book called Shoe Dog. Mm-hmm. And it's a great book for entrepreneurs because you see Nike now and you think, oh, my God, they're amazing. But watching him throughout the process and the ups and downs and trying to get the shoes from China and that deal breaking down and and then getting an athlete and um, and then putting the shoes and the shoes breaking down, just the ups and downs and really hearing him talk about how he built the company and how it was like a, an, another child really resonated with me so much. It was over a break and I, uh, we were, I can't remember where we were, but I just started posting like Phil Knight. Y'all got to read this. It was really good. And then one from way back again, sports. One of my, um, idols is Pat Summit from the University of Tennessee and it's reach for the summit. And it's not really, it's not about basketball. It's about how to be a good leader and the 10 commandments or her 10 commandments and, um, how to coach and how to be a good mentor. And so those really are the ones I go, go back to. Tennessee was a powerhouse. In women's I mean, basketball. There, there would not be, and, and, um, coach Ariama would tell you there wouldn't be a UConn. There wouldn't be a There wouldn't be these schools and these amazing women's programs without Pat Summit mm-hmm. because she was it. And we talk about earlier the secret sauce. You know, the reason UConn became UConn is that she put them on the schedule. Mm. And they started a rivalry and a battle. And that's the, no one else, no one cared about UConn. Right. But she was like, let's, let's start a rivalry there. And he now thanks her for that. I mean, she's a part of all women's basketball teams. Um, Coach Mulkey. Yeah. I mean, at La Tech, that that was a powerhouse. They would be battling with Pat Summit, and so um, she's just she's a mentor. She works extremely hard. The daughter of a farmer, and um, that's kind of that mentality that I have about mentorship. Love it. All right, here's how we normally wrap: is just one big thing, right? Uh-oh. Like we're going to end this on the the one big takeaway. Like if listeners missed all of the last hour of us talking and they tune in here right at the end. What's the one big thing you want to tell people about life or business or your faith or whatever? What's the one big thing? To be kind to one another. We are in such an environment where we're ultra competitive and our time is lacking that, you know, be just spending, taking an opportunity to spend time and to be kind with someone and to show them grace that they can make a mistake and it doesn't end the relationship. It is the actually the beginning of the relationship. One thing that from being in sports again is that I'm the closest, the closest people in my life are the people I've been in the, been in the ditch with. Right. Mm-hmm. And those would be my teammates, Karen Davis, um, Tracy Connor, and all these, all these players that when we couldn't breathe or crying or it was horrible, the coach is terrible, we went through all those, you know, hard times that now we laugh and talk about those. And so going through a uncomfortable conversation doesn't mean we can't come out the other side stronger and closer. And so I just say be kind to one another and um, be okay with being vulnerable and having difficult conversations.
that's it. There you go. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank <laughs> you so much, Amy. Thanks for hanging with us. Absolutely.